Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. And today's reading is taken uh, in two parts from Numbers 25 and 26. And we'll begin the reading at Numbers 25, verse 1. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, Each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear into both of them, right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped, but those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. Since he was as zealous for my honour among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore, tell him, I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood, because he was zealous for the honour of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. The name of the Israelites who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Salu, the leader of a Simeonite family. And the name of the Midianite woman who was put to death was Cosbi, daughter of Zur, a tribal chief of a Midianite family. The Lord said to Moses, Treat the Midianites as enemies and kill them. They treated you as enemies when they deceived you in the Peor incident involving their sister Cosbi, the daughter of of a Midianite leader, the woman who was killed when the plague came as a result of that incident. After the plague, the Lord said to Moses and Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, take a census of the whole Israelite community by families, all those 20 years old or more who are able to serve in the army of Israel. So on the plains of Moab, By the Jordan, across from Jericho, Moses and Eleazar the priest spoke with them and said, Take a census of the men 
20 years old or more, as the Lord commanded Moses. These were the Israelites who came out of Egypt. What follows in the next few verses is a list of the descendants of each tribe of Israel. We're going to move on to uh, verse 51 and pick it up from there. The total number of the men of Israel was 601,730. The Lord said to Moses, the land is to be allotted to them as an inheritance based on the number of names. To a larger group, give a larger inheritance, and to a smaller group, a smaller one. Each is to receive its inheritance according to the number of those listed. Be sure that the land is distributed by lot. What each group inherits will be according to the names for its ancestral tribe. Each inheritance is to be distributed by lot among the larger and smaller groups. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, thank you for that reading, Dave. And um, let me have my welcome to Pete's. It's great to see you this morning. I'm afraid I do have a bit of a sore throat. I've checked. It's not the plague. It's just a cold. But you might want to avoid me anyway if you don't want to get a cold um, after the service. Uh, let me just pour myself a water as well. Hold on. When will things go wrong again? When will you, when will we as a church, face and fall to our next temptation? It'd be so good, wouldn't it, if we knew when things were going to go wrong again, we could get ready on time and be sure that we're able to resist. But I can't tell you when. All I can tell you is that temptation will come. It will. And because we know temptation will come, personally and corporately, and because we don't know when, well, it's clear, isn't it, what we have to do. We have to always be on our guard against idolatry. That's the big point this morning. Be on your guard against idolatry always. Idolatry. It's the final sin here in this middle section of Numbers, chapters 11 to 25, in which we see sin disordering the people of God on their march to the promised land. We're going to unpack idolatry throughout the whole sermon, but a, a quick working definition just as we begin. It's turning away from the true God to love and worship, well, anything else, anything else, anyone else. And this idolatry in chapter 25 should come as a real shock to us. You see, like Pete said, it, it comes off the back of two passages where it's looked like the people of God have started to turn a corner. So in chapters 20 to 21, we saw the people of God making progress, starting to relate rightly to him in trust and repentance and obedience, starting to take possession of the promised land. And then in 22 to 24, we saw God's protection of the people. His cast iron commitment to come good on his promises to them. To protect them. 
from all threats. But just as the new dawn is breaking, major disaster. This is the worst disaster in the whole of Numbers 11 to 25. Did you see in verse 9? Those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. 24,000 in one day. What is that? Um, 40 Christchurch forwards? Wiped out just like that? Just when you think things are getting better. Be on your guard. What makes it even more shocking, though, is that this is exclusively the sin, not of that first generation condemned to die during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, but the sin of the second generation who are counted in that census we heard in chapter 26. It's their sin. We might not have seen that. We might have thought it was the sin of the first generation and the second census marks the second generation coming onto the scene, as it were. But in Deuteronomy 2, uh, Moses tells us when the first generation were completely dead, when they died out from the camp. He says that it was before they crossed the border of Moab. You can look it up if you want. Chapter 2 of Deuteronomy, verses 14 to 18. Which means that now we're in Moab. This is the sin of the second generation. A few of you have told me how encouraged you are that we have a largely new staff team at Forward, a new generation for this new chapter. But can I say that if you think that we don't face all the dangers that we've always faced in the past, then you're naive. We must always continue to be on our guard. Paul the apostle, meditating on, well, all the events in Numbers 11 to 25, actually all of them, and particularly this one. Do you know what he says? In 1 Corinthians 10, do you know how he teaches this passage? He says this, if you think you are standing firm, beware in case you fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, common to mankind. In other words, there will never be a generation that does not face this kind of temptation. Every single one of us tempted in this way, experiencing the temptations of these former slaves in this desert 3,200 years ago. Uh, 1,200 years after that, speaking to, well, urban sophisticates in the city of Corinth, very different people, Paul says the same temptations face you, they're common to mankind, and so a further 2,000 years on to us in Sheffield today, common to mankind, are you on your guard? Um, Andy Grove, the co-founder of Intel, said this, success breeds complacency, and complacency breeds failure. 
only the paranoid survive. Now, you know, I don't want us to be paranoid, but I do want us to be realistic. And I want us to be vigilant as a church. As we enter what is, in many ways, a new chapter, we must always be on our guard against idolatry. But I know a lot of people, when they read this passage, do have a kind of visceral reaction to it. I mean, it looks as though God is a bit over the top here, doesn't it? Is this sin of idolatry really so bad? 24,000 people dying in one day. And perhaps this passage is just another example of that Christian obsession with sex. Is that why the people are dying here? Because of sex out of marriage? Well, let let me say for a start that God made sex. It's his good gift. He is not anti-sex, but profoundly for it as he gives it to us for our good and our good pleasure. In fact, he made sexuality for us ultimately to teach us something about how we should all, as a people, relate to him, desire him. No, he's not anti-sex. It was his idea. But yes, he made it for a particular context, for marriage, lifelong marriage between a man and a woman, and not for the religious orgies that we see here. Verse 1, while Israel was staying in Shittim, verse 1, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women. That, That word could be uh, translated prostitution or even adultery, adultery with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. Did you notice, actually, the people's mistake here isn't fundamentally about abusing the good gift of sex at all. Fundamentally, It's about rejecting the good gift of relationship with God. The summary of what they've done comes in verse 3. Verse 3. So Israel joined in worshipping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Baal of Peor. That's the name of the Moabite God that they've started to worship here. And notice also when Moses pronounces his verdict, his summary of what Israel have done that's so wrong, again, it's not so much about the sex, but about the false worship. Verse 5, verse 5, so Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshipping the Baal of Peor. This word joined uh, in the NIV, it's Translated quite weakly in my version here. Some versions say yoked, and that's a much better translation, yoked. It's a picture of two animals bound together to pull a plow. You see, this is not a little flirtation with another god. It's Israel binding themselves, making a commitment to now pull in the same direction with a different god. And as the passage goes on, it is this yoking to a different spiritual husband that seems to be the problem God focuses on. 
the husband language is picked up by God to describe Israel's rejection of the relationship with him. But again, we miss it because of the translation. When Phineas saves the people, God explains what he's done in terms of a, a, a wife and husband relationship. So look at verse 11. Verse 11. Phineas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, for he was zealous. That word could be translated jealous. Jealous with my jealousy among them, so that in my jealousy I did not put an end to them. In fact, that word zealous uh, is translated jealous all through the whole of Numbers and all through the whole of the Pentateuch. I'm not quite sure why it was translated zealous here. But what kind of jealousy is this? Well, it's not the jealousy of a husband riddled with baseless suspicion. It's not a bad kind of jealousy. Do you remember, we've actually seen that kind of jealousy already in Numbers 5, haven't we? It was a shocking passage where uh, we saw a, a woman suspected of adultery, that same word in verse 1, a woman suspected of adultery by a husband who was jealous, same word as in verse 11, uh, without any evidence. Um, but we also saw in chapter 5 that God wants to protect women who fall under a husband's suspicion in that way. God is not for baseless jealousy. But we also saw that in chapter 5, God is for faithfulness. He takes actual betrayal in husband-wife relationships really seriously. Because, again, that husband-wife relationship depicts, above all, the most fundamental relationship for which we are all created, whether we're married or not our marriage to our maker as his people. And God's jealousy here, it's the feeling a faithful spouse rightly has if their partner cheats on them. It's the kind of feeling the apostle Paul had when he saw the Corinthian church leaving the true Jesus for a false Jesus. Do you remember how he described it in 2 Corinthians? He said this, I am jealous for you with the jealousy of God. And he's quoting Numbers 25, 11 there. He's saying, I'm like Phineas. He goes on in 2 Corinthians 11. I promised you to one husband, Christ, so that I might present you as a pure maiden to him. Phineas is given to us as a picture actually, of what New Testament pastoral teaching ministry is all about. Now, you'll be glad to know that, unlike Phineas, Paul didn't carry a spear around. And nor do your pastors at Fullwood. Though no doubt in the loft, we have some fake spears. And maybe I should walk around with one of those, uh, just to keep you on your guard. But the point is, well, all of us who are in pastoral ministry, like Phineas should be jealous for your devotion to God 
for the purity of your love for him. I wonder, is that what you expect us to be doing amongst you? Is that how you see the talks that we give to you every week? Do you understand what's happening here? We're not here just to inform you. We're certainly not here to entertain you, because we're obviously not very good at that. We are here to be jealous, jealous on God's behalf for your love for him. So, do you love him? Do you love your husband, Christ? The Hollywood actors, um, Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, had one of those very rare things in Hollywood, a 50-year marriage. Uh, And on the temptation to cheat on his wife, Paul Newman used to say, why would I go out for a hamburger when at home I've got steak? Now, back then, uh, in Numbers... People were throwing Christ's love back in his face by choosing the hamburger and jumping into bed with Baal. Did you see this guy Zimri in verses 6 and 8 who brazenly brings his Baal worship and the Midianite woman that he's sleeping with into the very heart of God's camp in verses 6 to 8. Right in front of the eyes of Moses, verse 6, and the whole assembly. Do you see then, God is not a, a bad husband filled with baseless jealousy and suspicion, but a good husband who is badly and brazenly wronged here. Baal, Baals were fertility gods. People worshipped them in the hope of bigger and better harvests. Baal, if you like, he promised to come along and provide for you. If only you take him as your master and husband. That's, that's what Baal means, master. Now, the gutting thing is, of course, that Israel don't need this kind of fertility God because their own God has already proved himself a powerful provider. Manna. Day after day after day, providing manna for 40 years in the desert. Quail twice, abundant water from a rock twice, enough to to quench the thirst of two million people and all their livestock. They don't need Baal. And now he is bringing them into a land that flows with milk and honey, that is fertile with figs and vines and pomegranates and grain and oil from olive plants everywhere you look. And he's committed to providing for them in this way because he has promised to do this to Abraham, their ancestor. And despite all their grumbling and disbelief, he is patient and will always be faithful to his promises because he loves his people. And is committed to his people. And isn't for turning. And won't betray them. Because he is a good husband. But instead of being faithful to him. They turn to Baal. Do you know what the sex was about here as well? It's ugly. It's so ugly. You see the idea was that as you had sex in these religious orgies. 
you would somehow arouse the Baals so that ultimately at the peak of their arousal, they would then give fertility to the land. It's grotesque, utterly grotesque. It's unnecessary and it's false. It's not just a hamburger. It's a rotten, stinking hamburger. And this choice of Israel, this choice, this desire, speaks of the perversity of their desires, their hearts. And of course, it's that perversity which provokes God's anger. Can you see how just his anger is? End of verse 3, the Lord's anger burned against them. End of verse 4, he wanted his fierce anger to turn away from them. End of verse 10, or, or yeah, middle of verse 10, Phineas indeed turns his anger away from the Israelites. And that is m- amazing that God's anger could be turned away in this way. But do you see that this kind of anger is, is just, it's a right response to this kind of betrayal? Let me wet my whistle. Well, I want to say actually this morning, praise God that we're not like this. Not like these people, Israel, here. And actually, you know, that's not a setup. I really mean it. Praise God that at Christ Church Forward, we have a real love for Christ. We don't want false Christs here. We're jealous about teaching the real Christ. You guys are desirous of him. It's been a wonderful thing being part of the church family here over the last 18 months for all our ups and downs. Everywhere I see signs of real love for him. You know, God actually warned Israel about this kind of temptation to idolatry after their first ever flirtation with a false god, after they came out of Egypt, after the golden calf incident in Exodus 34. He said to them there, when you come into the land, there's going to be this big temptation to marry the Canaanite women who worship false gods, and through marrying them to then get dragged away to the worship of false gods. It's going to be really tempting for you. Don't do it. Now Israel proved to be so idolatrous, they skipped the marriage bit and jump into bed with the Canaanite women at the first opportunity they have, the moment they come into contact with them. Can you see then what a great work of the Spirit is being done amongst us? Because day after day after day, we don't just come into contact with people who worship false gods for a moment. We live amongst people who worship false gods. We rub shoulders with them. We work with them. Some of us even are married to them. And yet, through God's strength, we find the strength to keep coming back here Sunday after Sunday to try and renew our love and our devotion for Christ. 
I wonder if we ever take it for granted what God is doing amongst us here. It's remarkable that he keeps us from melting away into the world and keeps us standing up and standing out in faithfulness to Christ. It's a wonderful thing that he is doing amongst us. Now, of course, that's not true for every one of us. And it's not true for any of us all the time, is it? But at Christ Church, we are genuinely and fundamentally Christ's church. You see, I just want to say it would be easy, wouldn't it, to beat ourselves up with a passage like this, but I don't think that would be right. Now, again, there are some individuals who need a wake-up call. I know some in the student ministry who are naively toying with entering into a serious relationship with people who don't worship Christ. And let's face it, those kind of relationships are enticing. That feeling of being wanted by somebody who wants you in return. And the fact that Christ wants you and wants you to want him back, well, that can so easily take a back seat, can't it, to the girl or the guy that you can see and touch today. And if that's you and you find yourself in that situation, can I say you must wake up to the danger you're in. Hooking up with somebody, yoking yourself to someone who doesn't worship your God could kill your worship, could kill your faithfulness, could kill your faith. Why would you risk that? But I get the sense that for most of us, actually, the challenge here is is not to do something radically different like that, but rather just not to get complacent, to stay on our guard. You know, even if things are going fairly well in our relationship with Jesus, we need what, what Matt called this week a healthy fear, a healthy fear of our own ability to wreck the relationship. Every marriage needs constant attention. There's never room for complacency. Amy and I have been married 15 years. Um, so that means we've made it past the seven-year itch. Isn't that good? Have you heard of the seven-year itch? That desire that apparently springs up often about seven years to run off after another spouse or a partner. Well, we're eight years past that. We're 15 years in. Isn't that great? Unfortunately, that means we're slap bang in the middle of second decade drift, which is terrible news. Will it be an itch? Might it be a drift, a slow drift? Whatever it is, you can't get complacent. You must stay on your guard. It's interesting, isn't it? Phineas, you can see him as a picture of all sorts of different things in the New Testament, not just of ministers who are jealous for your devotion to Christ, but actually of, of each and every one of you. You see, what does Phineas do here? He puts sin to death, doesn't he? And we're all to take that kind of radical action in our own lives and hearts, to search out the idolatry in our hearts wherever it's beginning to take root and to put it to death. I wonder what idols are you tempted to jump into bed with? Sherat and Julia from the uh, biblical counseling team gave me a few diagnostic questions, which I think are really helpful. 
What gives you joy when you get it, when you have it? What gives you joy? What makes you bitter when you're deprived of it? What makes you grumble if you don't get it? What makes you feel like you've arrived, like you're home at last, just where you want to be? Or if you're not there yet, where is it you want to get to? (laughs) And of course, questions like that flow from all we've seen of the people on their way through the wilderness, don't they? As they've grumbled about the Egypt that they've left behind and want to go back to, the old life that they had with its melons and garlic and cucumber that make them feel like living with God isn't enough, isn't enough to be satisfied. Sometimes they've just simply worshipped their belly and their appetites. Sometimes, I guess, it's the security that was on offer in Egypt as they lived a stable life, stable slavery. But at least it wasn't as frightening as crossing this terrifying wilderness. But they're crossing this wilderness with God. Isn't that enough? Isn't that enough to feel secure, no matter what life throws at them? Well, it would be if only they weren't idolaters, you see. I suspect that if we all really examine ourselves carefully, we will all find many temptations to idolatry that constantly need putting to death. Let's get radical like Phineas and root them out. But finally, you know the best way to root out idolatry? The best way to resist rotten hamburgers? Of course, it's to fall more in love with the steak, isn't it? To see what's on offer at home. To see and savor how good your husband really is. And this, I think, is the third way we can read Phineas. Because after all, he is a priest who stops a plague to save the people. And is promised in verse 13, did you see what he's promised? A covenant of a lasting priesthood because he's made atonement for the people of Israel. Do you see he's a picture of the truly permanent, the eternal priest, Jesus. The priest who roots out sin, not by piercing sinners with a spear. Though he will do that one day when he comes to judge all who refuse to repent. But no, he came first, first, to be pierced on our behalf, to die for our sin, that we might be welcomed right into the heart of God's camp, not thrown out as we deserve to be. And the remarkable thing is that Christ, he's he's not just a matchmaker jealous on God's behalf like Phineas was or Paul was. He himself is the jilted husband. And yet he, he himself, came to be pierced for our transgressions, for our betrayal of him. A divine husband, who though he was well within his rights, 
to serve divorce papers, to bring a plague, to put us to death, instead was put to death for us and for our forgiveness. Find me a husband like that. It's a remarkable picture of the most remarkable commitment by the most remarkable husband there has ever been. I don't know who or what might threaten your relationship with him. I know that temptation will surely come. In fact, it will never go away until we make it home. But I also know that God has provided us with a way to overcome every temptation. And fundamentally it is this. Know Christ. Know him. And love him. Let's pray. Father, help us to be on our guard today. Help us above all to know and love our one husband. Please would he be enough for us always, more than enough. Please help us to know and love him. Amen.